Good morning. Would you take God's word and turn to Ecclesiastes? For those that are visiting or new, we're in a series going through this wisdom book written by Solomon. And again, in context, remember the key phrases. Solomon tells us up front that in his pursuit of many things, he's discovered that under the sun, life apart from God, that's a key phrase, when you take God out of the picture, everything results in a very meaningless, empty, useless life. Now, the last two weeks, you were introduced to another phrase where he says it's like chasing the wind. Again, you can see the futility of such an activity. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 this morning, looking at the first 11 verses. When I reflect back to high school, myself and the math teacher had an issue. Anybody here have an issue with their math teacher? Raise their hand. Amen. Yeah. How many math te- teachers are here this morning? Got one? Now, understand for the youth and for the younger people, this was pre-calculator days. They had calculators, but it was illegal to bring them into a class. We got an automatic zero if we were caught using an electronic device. Now, the issue we had was this. I would usually come up with the right answer. The answer that he wanted, the right answer. But how I got there... I would get marked down for because how I got there was a lot different than where the math teacher wanted me to go. Now, when you look at Solomon, this book is about process. It's about how he tried to get there. Remember, the goal was purpose and meaning in life. And so Solomon is about a journey, about a process, and he wanted the right conclusion He wanted to find meaning and hope and purpose, but how he chose to get there ended up changing the whole definition of purpose and meaning. Now remember his conclusion. Anything and everything apart from God is meaningless. This morning in chapter 2, we're looking at what we call the hedonist solution. For those that might not know what hedonism is, it's, it's the pursuit of pleasure. It's if it feels good, do it. We that were raised back in the 70s and the 60s heard that a lot. It's about self-indulgence. It's the ethical theory that pleasure in the sense of satisfaction and desires is the highest good and proper aim of human life. Now think about this definition and then think about this phrase that's used Often, we talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. happiness. Where is it found? Declaration of Independence. That's your history lesson for the morning. But think about that. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is the pursuit that makes all the difference. In fact, it's the pursuit that changes the definition of happiness. It was the early 80s. Forbes magazine labeled this woman the smartest businesswoman in America. She had an IQ of 150. In five years, in the early 80s, she amassed a fortune of $125 million in her business venture. She had two nicknames. 
She was called the Queen of Hedonism. The other nickname was Material Girl. We're talking about Madonna. In an interview back in Forbes magazine, here's what she said after amassing her fortune. She was, I am not happy, and I do not know of anyone who is. The only goal in life is to be somebody. Now, you might ask, why use someone so old? (laughs) Well, here's the reason. Where we are today is really no different than where we were 30, 40, 50 years ago. We just didn't arrive at the scene of everything we're experiencing today with nothing going on in the past. This pursuit of hedonism in America has been with us for a long time. And Madonna illustrates that our experiment in America is not going well. Think about it. We live in lavish luxury comparative to the rest of the world. Our quality of life, our shelter, our housing, our food, everything is in the top 1% of the entire world. Yet our culture is stressed and depressed. While our population is 5% of the population in the world, we consume 50% of the pharmaceutical drugs made in our world. And so you have to ask the question, why? We are one of the most prosperous nations in the world. And why do we have this profound pain and grief that enslaves us, that disappoints us? Why do we indebt ourselves to the pursuit when the outcome is not producing what we desire it to produce. Now, if Solomon were here today, he might say something like this, because he says it in Ecclesiastes. In spite of all your religious activity, when you look at what you're experiencing, you are living for the most part under the sun. Even though you acknowledge God and claim that God exists, most of your life is built around your own pursuits and not what God declares. And I don't know if we believe that. Now Solomon on his journey, and again, remember, there's no restraints to this. Whatever he felt like doing, he could make it legal because he was the king. He had the money. He literally was the wealthiest man in the world. He was the top dog. You know how we always say there's someone that has more? There was no one that had more than Solomon. And he had the time and he had the resources. So in Ecclesiastes 2, we're going to break down the first 11 verses this way. In verse 1, he answers the question. In verses 2 through 11... It's the process. It's the math. It's how he came to this conclusion. So here's his opening line. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1. By the way, who advised him? He said, I said in my heart. He advised himself. It was what he thought. It's what he wanted. It's what he desired. Whatever he felt like doing, he did. Come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So up front, he gives us a conclusion. He said, listen, 
I'm going to talk in brief history about a lot of things I've been through, and I want you to know that at the end of this, it left me empty. Verse 2. His verse venture was comedy. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? Now, when you think about comedy, there is some truth that comedy gives us relief, doesn't it? I mean, how many of us do not enjoy a really good laughter? Now, I don't know about you, but I love a belly chuckle of a baby. It's just something very cute. Recently, I saw a video of our granddaughter, Mercy, and their dog, Walter, is trying to catch bubbles, and she just starts giggling all over the place. I mean, that is fun to watch. And it does give you release from, but it doesn't provide meaning, does it? One of our present-day comedians, Jerry Seinfeld, writes this. He said, everyone's looking for good sex, good food, and a good laugh. They are little islands of relief in what's often a painful existence. Now, again, you have to ask yourself, why in a country like ours that has everything that we really desire is life so painful? But listen to what he said. They're little islands of relief. They don't provide meaning. They don't provide hope. They don't give lasting satisfaction. And history in America tells us that sometimes the funniest people live very dark lives. They often take their own lives, and they're haunted by their own darkness and demons. And so the first thing Solomon says is, listen, laughter for all its benefits gives no lasting meaning and purpose. His second venture is alcohol. Anybody been there, done that? Now, by the way, for those that say, well, I've never pursued that, You can substitute other things. You can substitute drugs. You can substitute food. You can substitute ice cream. (laughs) Now, how many have been there, done that, okay? It's when we pursue something to give us relief from. So here's what Solomon says in verse 3. I search with all my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. He wanted to experiment but keep his wits about him. He wanted to dance close to the edge without completely falling off. It's what we call a controlled party animal. On how to lay hold on folly. So I might see what was good for children of man to do under heaven during a few days of their life. Bev and I were staying in Vernon, New Jersey one time, and there's a resort nearby called Crystal Springs. In the basement of Crystal Springs, there was a private collection of wine by Gene Mulhill. 135,000 bottles. It was worth over $30 million. I said to myself, I mean, this has to be the largest collection of wine in the world, right? No, it wasn't. There's people that have larger collections. By the way, he's dead now. And what good is his collection? It's part of a private restaurant. If you want to go there, I think the most expensive bottle was $35,000. And if that's part of your temptation, you and I need to have a talk before you go. (laughs) But Solomon, 
Well, listen to this in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 21. Talk about a controlled party animal. All the king Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, you know, that wasn't his primary residence. He had multiple homes, were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Nice way of saying silver is worthless. If he had silver, it was no good. He had that much gold. Now let's go to present day. Ever see beer commercials? People are happy. People are having fun. They're under control. And it looks like all the people in the commercials have their lives together. When's the last time you saw someone advertising beer and they speak of the tragedy of alcoholism or drunk driving? When's the last time you saw the commercial illustrating how they lose their families, their jobs, and their friends. When I was serving the church in San Francisco for a year, I remember talking to people that were on the streets, living on the streets. Some were lawyers, some were doctors, some were preachers. I still remember Vernon. He graduated from Moody Bible Church. I mean, Moody Bible College. But alcoholism got a hold of his life. It wrecked his family. He got kicked out, and he was living on the streets. We experiment with this today, don't we? I was at a conference in Charlotte, North Carolina once. It's a church growth conference, and I was there four days, and I had decided to do an experiment. I was staying on the Billy Graham Parkway, so I thought that was okay. And there was a local bar around the corner, so at the end of the day, I would walk into this bar every night just to see who was there and what would happen. By the end of the third night, remember the show called Cheers, where Norm walks in, they go, hi, Norm. By the end of the third night, I'd walk in, the whole bar would turn around and say, hi, Greg. (laughs) But all I would do is sit and listen. And I heard story after story that were told with a lot of pain and tears. And that bar to them was that little island of relief that would distract them, that would avoid their reality, that would dull the pain of their relationships, of their job, of their home, of their kids. And they were so enslaved to their pursuits that even though I sat and listened to them, not a single person asked me about my life. They had no idea if I was married. They probably didn't care. They had no idea what I did for a living. I would have been curious if they found out. They had no idea of my story. But every night they were there. And that was their little island of relief. We have become enslaved today. And when the wheels fall off, we blame our bent on others and our DNA. And Solomon's conclusion says, listen. You can pursue alcohol all you want. You pursue drugs. You pursue food. You pursue all those kinds of pleasures that give us temporary relief. But it will not give you meaning and purpose. Third venture of hedonism. Real estate. Look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest's growing trees. Now, understand when he's describing this, this is not some backyard garden. 
when you look at history, there was entire reservoirs of water built for his personal park. His personal home, one of them, his main residence, took 13 years to build. His staff, according to scripture, was tens of thousands of people to take care of. He had a thousand wives, plus children, plus staff. It was a small city, multiple palaces. He had the dream house, dream property, dream landscaping, and he had the dream staff that took care of all of it for him. There was no one who had more. He was the top dog. And Solomon says, at the end of the day, no. You're left empty and useless and meaningless. His fourth venture was employees. In verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions, herds and flocks, more than any who had been in been before me in Jerusalem. This was his business venture. And it's interesting when you read scripture in 1 Kings 4, here's what it says, just to feed his staff, okay? These are the people that employed. And a core, C-O-R-S, figure one to seven, okay? One core is about seven bushels in our terms. Solomon's provision for one day, this is to feed his staff, was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. Someone took the time to figure out that this would feed an estimated of 20 to 30,000 people. And all these employees existed to meet his needs and his wants. And if you want to get a picture of this, the next time you go to a major sporting event, look around. That's who Solomon fed every single day. And they were all there for one purpose and only one purpose, to take care of him. And Solomon says, you know, at the end of the day, at all these people, at my beck and call, they would do whatever I wanted. He said, it is useless. It is meaningless. It is hopeless. Venture five, animals. We read it in verse seven. He had herds and flocks more than any who had been before him in Jerusalem. In first Kings chapter four, it says Solomon also had 40,000 stalls for horses for his chariots. 40,000 horses and 12,000 horsemen. Solomon could ride a different horse every day for 32 years and not ride the same horse. And that's just the horses. Again, history tells us he had his own personal zoo. Any animal he wanted, he could obtain and possess. And at the end of this, he says, listen, it provides no meaning, no purpose, nothing. His sixth venture is money into hedonism. In verse 8, I also gather for myself silver and gold, in the treasure of kings and provinces. Got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the light of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. When you read 1 Kings 10, the Queen of Sheba shows up one day to find out if Solomon's as smart as everybody was saying. 
And she was so impressed that she gave him 9,000 pounds of gold. According to scripture and history, the annual intake of Solomon every single year from people coming and giving him gold was about 25 tons. Every single year. He could buy his own band. I got singers. Imagine that. Whoever he wanted. At the end of the day, he says, listen, doesn't matter how much property I have. Doesn't matter how many gardens I have. Doesn't matter how large my business is. Doesn't matter how funny people are. Doesn't matter how much money I have. At the end of the day, it is meaningless. It is useless. It is hopeless. Now, at this point, I know there's probably some people sitting here saying, I don't quite know if I really believe his answer. If I had just some of that money and some of that house and some of that personal staff, just give me a chance. If I just had a fraction of what he had, I know I would be happy if I could pursue happiness this way. But see, that's the problem, isn't it? We pursue God, not happiness. Happiness is a result of not something or a goal that we intend. See, there's two big lies. One is exposed by Christians. The other, we hold on to our culture. Both are untrue. The first lie is this. The church tries to convince the world that sin is not pleasurable. Got news for you. Sin is pleasurable. Temporarily pleasurable. It leads to a whole lot of pain. We know that. But why would we be tempted if it wasn't pleasurable? So the attraction of that amount of money and the attraction of those kind of houses and the attraction of the garden and the animals, the attraction of all that stuff, we sit there and say, oh, wow, only if we. But the end result, Solomon says, it is useless, it is meaningless, and you won't find purpose there. Here's the second lie. comes from our culture. As long as you do not intentionally hurt another person, whatever you choose to do with your body and life is fine. And we've heard many versions of that growing up. In verse 10, Solomon writes, And whatever my eyes desired, just in case you had some other options, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this is my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had extended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All this, Solomon said, all this pursuit of hedonism, all this pursuit of pleasure were nothing more than little islands of relief with no lasting meaning or purpose. Now, I hope you saw the critical phrases down through these 11 verses. It really denotes the worship of self. How many times did he say, I said, and I searched, and I asked? I, 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 I never said no to anything. And the dilemma is that we often drift, isn't it? That we never go into this just kind of jumping off a cliff, but it's more like sliding down a slope. First Kings 11, chapter 3, it talks about Solomon. It says he had 700 wives who were princesses. They were part of deals that he made with other kingdoms. 
and 300 concubines. They were just women he wanted. They were slaves. And here's a critical phrase. And his wives turned, his, turned away his heart. See, they were allowed to bring their gods. It was just kind of an addition to. He never left Yahweh. He was still involved in religious activity. But all their gods changed the way that he saw this world. Malcolm Muggeridge, a British journalist and author, wrote in the autobiography, the title is The Wasted Years. It is an Ecclesiastes-style book. In this book, he writes that he's always been faithful to his wife. But in the back of his mind, he thought, you know, if the right opportunity would present itself just for the experience, you see the rationalization? He would try it. So in India, while he was teaching, and his wife and kids were back in Britain, one morning he went for a swim in the Ganges. He saw a woman bathing herself a quite a distance upstream. And he thought to himself, you know, I'm a wealthy Englishman. She's a poor Indian. What could it hurt? Who would know? So he began to swim underwater upstream to her. As he was doing this, one voice would say, don't do it. Another voice would say, it's now or never. So he continued to swim. And when he surfaced right in front of her, he got the shock of his life. She was a leper. Her nose was eaten away. White blotches were all over her body. She did not even look human. Then immediately he thought, what a wretched woman she is. And instantaneously at the same time, overwhelmed with this thought. What a wretched man am I. And he wrote down, physical leprosy is crippling and terminal, but spiritual leprosy is deadly and eternal. If we walk in this life away from God, the disease of sin will consume us. I don't know how many people have read, ever read Eli Weissel, Holocaust survivor, but he died yesterday at 87. He's an author of about 40 books. His most notable was called Night. And it was really about his personal experience of him and his family living in the horror of the Holocaust. His mission when he got out was to remind the world of its past mistakes so they would not repeat them. In a recent interview, here's what he said. My greatest disappointment in life is that nothing changed. Human nature remained as it was. Society remained what it was. There's too much indifference. Tomorrow's July 4th. And we celebrate our nation. And you think about the pursuit of purpose and meaning in our nation. And how it continues to walk away from God. And unlike Solomon, wisdom has left us. I'm afraid that wisdom has left us even in the church. And our path will have its consequences. But the church will always have the opportunity to live Christ. Now, I don't know what that means always, but I do mean that with a spirit, of, I do understand that we need to have a spirit of humility, not arrogance, that we have to live in the word and spirit, 
that we choose a path of love, which means the starting point for us when we look at our world and their pursuits, and we know where that pursuit's going to be. They're going to end up vanity of vanities, all is vanity, that we look at people as made in the image of God. See, our starting point is Genesis 1 and 2. Our world starting part is starting point is so different. They start with income. They start with sexuality. They start with a whole host of things. But God says, no, everyone is made in the image of God, which means to us then that we pursue life with dignity and respect for any and everyone. Now Solomon, in his pursuit of pleasure, says three things. One, it lacks staying power. Two, it blinds us to reality. And three, it disillusions us. That's really the conclusion of what he's been saying in the first 11 verses. It's empty, it's meaningless, it's chasing the wind. And the only person that can bring meaning in our lives is Jesus Christ. We celebrated that through communion this morning. We celebrate that in worship every single day when we get up and we choose to go out into a world. And as we sang about, we deliberately choose, intentionally choose to look around and bless this world. Not whether they deserve it or not, we just choose to bless because God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen? Mm-hmm. We're going to close in a moment. As the worship team comes up, I do want to ask this because there are some of you that are sitting here and you pursued life apart from God. I mean, you know that in your heart. You may be in that excited phase where the temptation is full of pleasure. You may be beyond that where your life is crashing and burning and people don't know about it. And you may be beyond that where people know that your life is crashed and burned. And you really never decided to follow Christ. And understand this, that, that our purpose and meaning really is to, to glorify and bring glory to God. And we do that through a personal relationship with Christ. That's what brings meaning and purpose. So if you're here this morning and you would like to accept Christ and get off that train that Solomon's been talking about, the train of I, so I want you to stand and we're going to have someone meet with you and work through that process. So is there anyone here this morning that would like to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior? Just stand up. We're going to pray for you, but we're going to put somebody with you. Again, if I don't see you, forgive me because sometimes the lights get a little bright and I don't see everybody. Is there anyone? Let me pray. Father God, I pray that we're convinced that what Solomon tells us and warns us about is we take to heart because all that is a whole lot of trouble and pain. And I pray for all of us here this morning, Lord, that we become the church that you called us to be. Then in a spirit of humility, uh, we just engage being Christ to whatever circumstance or situation or person you bring into our lives. And we don't have to apologize for that. We don't have to be arrogant and get in people's faces. But we learn to walk people with people and sit and listen to their stories, and we present Christ. Then your spirit and your word does the rest. 
I pray, Lord, that every day we wake up, we look around to bless people, to be Christ to those situations and circumstances, because our lives are not accidents. You bring opportunities every single day. May we take advantage of those. I pray, Lord, that we become a church that really is a light in the midst of darkness. I pray for our nation because we have turned our back on you. And I pray there's such a movement of Christ and people that uh, the only way to get it back is just by sheer numbers of people following you. Help us, Lord, with wisdom because we don't have it. We're asking for it as you tell us to ask for in James. On how to navigate this current situation and circumstance that we live in. Because I'll admit there's some days I'm at a loss for answer. But we thank you for your word. We thank you for each other. We thank you for Solomon's word to us. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. Amen.